Hey guys, good morning. How you guys doing? Good. See, I always do that. I always ask the crowd a question that uh, needs a response and it, it just doesn't work. I hope you're all doing well. It's great to be here this morning. I put on a button up to class things up a little bit since I'm teaching the Bible this morning, but I refuse to tuck it in. That's where I draw the line. Um, but I'm excited to get the opportunity to open the Bible with you guys. Um, we're continuing our teaching series through First Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17 this morning. Last week, we heard this beautiful truth that we're, we're a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. Peter beautifully lays out this identity that we as believers have in Christ, that we're citizens of heaven and we're living as visitors in a foreign land. Like your, your visa says earth, but your passport says heaven. And that's awesome news, but it leaves us with this question. What do we do while we're here? Like, how do we live as exiles? And in the text this week, and actually in the text for the next few weeks, um, Peter starts to answer these questions. He starts to give some instructions for how to live out your visa here on earth. So let's read through the text together, and then we're going to kind of talk about three different circles or contexts in which we live out this identity. Again, we're, uh, we're in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. If you want to open your Bibles, your Bible app, follow along um, the text on the screens. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one. If you want to stop by uh, the welcome table after the service, we'd love to hook you up. We believe the Bible is the Word of God, and it has power, and you should be in it. So we'd love to give you one. Well, let's read this text together. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I love that last verse, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. If you're a bullet points person, Peter is speaking your love language here. Right, like he gives, he gives the cliff notes to his own paragraph. It's clear, it's to the point, it's a thing of beauty. Verse 16, the one before it, on the other hand, is a bit more confusing. It's, it's a little bit of a train wreck. Did you guys catch it? It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of, the God, of, as servants of God. The NIV translates that as live as God's slaves. So what does it look like for you to live out your identity in Christ? Live, as, live free. Live as someone who's free. And how do you do that? How do you live free? Be a slave. What? That makes no sense. Like, what's going on? It's like saying to a misbehaving teenager, like, you know, you really need to grow up and start acting more like a child. It just, like, it makes no sense. And we're going to be kind of working backwards a little bit, but I, I want to start our inspection of the text here in verse 16, 
Because I think locked within its contradictory language is the main idea of the passage. In fact, I think it's, it's a vital part of the foundation that informs the more specific instruction that Peter lays out in, in this text and even in the next couple chapters as he tells us how to live out this identity as spiritual exiles. So let's get to the bottom of this. Get out your magnifying glass. We're going to crack the code. I hope you brought your magnifying glass. Uh, it's a Sunday morning essential, like phone, wallet, keys, Bible, magnifying glass. You can remember it for next week. All right, let's look at verse 16 again. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So let's just kind of follow the line of logic here. Let's walk through it. It says, you've been given a new identity in Christ, that of a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation. The way that you're to live out that identity is to live as people who are free. One way to not do that a false expression of that freedom is to do evil, to sin, and to say, it's okay, I can do this because I'm free. That's how to not do it. Instead, how you do it is you live out that freedom by living as a servant to God. So what the, what the verse is saying, and this is our big idea for the morning, is this. It's our identity is most fully lived out, and true freedom is most fully experienced when we submit to God. And you might be saying, Isaac, that's still confusing. Freedom is still submission. I thought we were going to clear things up. I thought we were going to resolve the tension. You really haven't done anything. Well, I've got news for you, friend. The Christian life is full of tension. It's kind of frustrating, right? There's tension everywhere. But just because there's tension doesn't mean that we can't be sure that it's true. And the truth of this idea we see perfectly lived out in the life of Jesus. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In Mark 10, 45, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He left his home. He became a sojourner and an exile like you and me. And he spent his time on earth doing the will of the Father. He lived out his visa in submission to God, and in service of others. Jesus is God. Like, he has every freedom in the universe. He can do literally anything he wants. But how did he choose to exercise his freedom? He did it by perfectly submitting to God's will. And he set us free from our sin so that we can experience that same freedom in servanthood to Christ, in servanthood to God the Father, as Christ did. Now, think about your walk with Jesus. Like, when, when have you felt the most free? When have you felt the most joy? I know for me, it's, it's been in seasons where, by grace, I've been able to, to live consistently in obedience to God's commands and to walk consistently in repentance when I fail to do that. It's been when I've sought out ways to serve my wife and my friends and my coworkers. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. More often than not, for me, choosing obedience is hard. It's difficult. But that's when I experience God's grace and his goodness. That's when I breathe in that fresh air of freedom. John 15, Jesus is talking about abiding in him. And he says we do that by obedience. And then he says, I tell you these things that my joy may be in you 
and your joy may be made complete. We experience a fullness of joy and a great freedom when we live in obedience to God, when we submit ourselves to his will. I think Philippians 2, 4 through 8, beautifully sums up the call of our identity in Christ. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. What he's saying there is, let this be the way you think about things. Let this be your attitude. Let this permeate who you are. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we live out our identity, our freedom, in obedience and submission to God. And in this passage, Peter gives us three different contexts, and he tells us how people submit to God, um, how people submitted to God behave in those contexts. So here they are. I'm going to give us both the context and the behavior or the action. The first one is within yourself, you fight sin. People submitted to God fight sin within themselves. The second one is people submitted to God do good deeds amongst non-believers. And the third one is people submitted to God obey the law in relation to the government. So let's start as, as Peter does with ourselves. He's speaking to you as an individual He's saying, okay, before you take a step out the front door, let's talk, about, let's talk about all this. Let's talk about the situation that you've got going on inside of you. And here's the situation. There's a war raging inside of you. Look again at verse 11. It says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Your old identity is waging war against your new identity. Your sin nature is, is trying to resist, trying to push back on the new identity that you have in Christ, and you need to fight back. The sinful desires we had before we met Jesus, they, they usually don't just like disappear the moment we put our faith in Jesus, right? They keep popping up. They're persistent. So uh, my wife, Abby, uh, got involved with a community garden program in our neighborhood. We started it last summer, been doing it this summer. Um, there's a garden a few blocks from our apartment and, and she got a couple plots. And when we first rolled up on these gardens, like these garden boxes, it was a hot mess. It was bad, it was full of weeds. Like there was all kinds of thistles and vines and like unhelpful grasses. Grass is good outside of a garden box, bad inside of a garden box, right? So it was, it was miserable, and so we, and, and when I say we, I mean mostly she, because uh, I have allergies, and I avoid the garden <laughs> at all costs. I stay out of it as much as possible. Um, so we, uh, we pulled up these weeds, and we tilled the soil, right? We planted seeds, we planted all these little starter plants, and we put down straw over the soil to help it retain moisture, we turned this little box of weeds into a garden. It was awesome. It was great. But guess what happened? 
A few days later, these weeds, they start popping up out of the ground again. So we've got to go back and we've got to pull them. Weeds are persistent. Man, they don't quit. It's pretty annoying. They have deep roots and they don't yield their territory lightly. But in order for that garden to be fruitful, in order for it to be the best garden it can be, Abby has to be vigilant about pulling those weeds. She's got to get as much of that bad root out of the ground as she can. So the carrots and the shallots and the beans and the tomatoes have room to grow. If you want to talk garden, find Abby. She loves to talk garden. It's so good. I benefit from it because of the carrots and the shallots and the tomatoes and food comes out of the ground. It's incredible. <laughs> so our identity in Christ is, is like this garden, right? Like greed and pride and lust and anxieties you had before you met Jesus, they're going to try to make a comeback and you've got to be vigilant about fighting against them. You need to tend the garden of your soul. Chances are, if I ask you what sins you struggle with, I think you'd be able to give me an answer pretty quickly. And if you were to ask me, I'd, I'd give you a big fat list, right? But I, I want you to think for a second about like that, that sin or two, the, the ones that keep popping up, the ones at the top of your list that are most prevalent or persistent in your life. How are you fighting those sins? Like what, what steps are you taking to root the passions of the flesh out of your soul? I think my main question is, are you repenting of those sinful desires or are you keeping them concealed? Like repentance can be hard and it can be scary. We might fear what people will think of us. We might fear how, how vulnerable it makes us feel to let others into that struggle. We might be ashamed of how often we have to repent. I know I am. That's so discouraging. But repentance is evidence that you're fighting, right? Repentance is the ammunition against your sinful desires. If we're going to uh, stick with the garden analogy, it's like weed begone, right? It's your herbicide. Although I think I would enjoy gardening more if we were shooting the weeds out of the ground. Would it be effective? No, but enjoyable. But here's something else I think that's important for us to understand about this text. Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here's one of the tensions that we live in as Christians. Jesus has already won that war. Hallelujah, right? That's good news. If you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the war is already won. And to prove that the war is won, God has given you his Holy Spirit, who is the down payment, the guarantee of your inheritance in heaven. Your soul has been sealed for heaven by the Holy Spirit. God's got that on lock. It's a sure thing. But here's the problem. Your flesh didn't get the memo, right? Your sin nature is still fighting that war. And though we know it's not going to win in the end. We know that God has already won. What it, what it can do is keep you from looking like Jesus to the world. If left unchecked, those weeds are going to choke out the good fruit, and your garden is going to look more like a jungle. So be on guard and fight sin. Choose obedience 
by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside you. And there's, uh, there's an important implication of this idea, right? Before we move on to the next point, like we're about to step out into an unbelieving world. And as we do, we should remember the struggle that exists inside of ourselves, right? Fighting sin is hard. And even with the Holy Spirit living inside me, it's, it's a moment-by-moment struggle to depend on his power and to not give in to my sin nature, not give in to my desires. So as you step out into an unbelieving world, don't be surprised when you see people indulging in and even glorifying sin. That should not shock you. Because we all have the same sinful nature, right? But those living apart from Christ don't have the Holy Spirit. That's a scary thought, right? Think about how you'd be living without the Holy Spirit inside you, convicting you and calling you to repentance and obedience. Think about what your life might be like. All right, now think about a whole world populated with that person. Right? That's rough. When you see an unbelieving world choosing sin, don't don't jump to judgment. Don't be easily offended and don't look down on them. Let your heart break for them. See your own brokenness and empathize with them. They're you without Jesus. So give them Jesus. So let's, let's step fully into this context of an unbelieving world. How do we, as a people submitted to God, live amongst unbelievers? We should do good deeds. Living in a world of unbelievers, we, as people submitted to God, we should be doing good deeds. Let's look at verse 12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, Peter uses the term Gentiles here. We see that term pop up a lot in the Bible. Um, Gentile is a term that refers to a non-Jewish person, right? It's a, it's a pretty black and white term. There are Jews, the people of Israel, Israel, and there are Gentiles, which is anyone who's not an Israelite. But it's, it's an interesting thing that Peter uses this language here. It's, it's interesting because he's writing predominantly to a non-Jewish audience. Like most of the people in the churches that are going to read this letter are non-Jews. They're Gentiles. So what's happening? Like, why, why is Peter using this term? Clearly, he's not referring to them as believers. So what's going on? Peter is saying to his audience, hey, the the terminology of Israel, it now applies to you. You've been brought into the people of Israel, God's, his chosen people through Christ. And we too, through Christ, have been brought into that same family. We are that holy nation, that people for God's own possession. So we can safely read the term Gentiles here as meaning pagans or unbelievers. And Peter tells the readers, tells us, to do good deeds. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And when Peter says, keep your conduct honorable, he's not calling us to the, to the world's code of conduct, 
He's calling us to God's code of conduct. We're not supposed to blend in with the world. We're supposed to stand out from the world. And I think the reading of the NIV version is helpful here. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Here's the challenge about that call. It's not, it's not just that you're supposed to outdo non-believers in good works. It's that when you do it, when you actually pull it off, people aren't going to understand. In fact, this verse tells us that they're going to accuse you of doing wrong. They're going to speak against you. Your good deeds, your honorable conduct, your submission to God is going to get misinterpreted until they meet Jesus. And in that moment, everything is going to make sense, and they'll give glory to God for the good that you've done. So Jordan Adams uh, did announcements, college pastor. If you haven't met him, that was him. We go way back. We, uh, we went to college together, which was a million years ago. I'm so very, very old. A whole 10 years back, we were freshmen together at Iowa State. And uh, we, were, we were roommates our junior year, so we got that. We've got that bond. We've smelt each other's dirty laundry, and we still love each other. It's a big deal. You can ask him about my chair full of cardigans. Uh, so one time, I, I think it was towards the end of our freshman year, Jordan and I, we were in his car. We were driving down Lincoln Way, which is kind of the main drag in Ames. And we were listening to one of the CDs that he had in his car. And it was of his favorite band, The Wedding. Jordan loves The Wedding. If you want to love Jordan, love The Wedding. Talk to him about it. It's great. And I, I had never listened to their music before. But I was like, I was sitting there rocking along, and it was great. And it, it reminded me of this other band, and I thought he would like it. So I was like, oh, Jordan, you, you, uh, you got to listen to this other band. Like, you're going to love them. I'll burn you a CD. And this, this was before Spotify caught on, right? People still burn CDs. Like, streaming wasn't really a thing. You could kind of do Pandora, but, like, you didn't really have control. So people were still burning CDs. I know that ages me, but listen, college students. The world was different 10 years ago. Okay. So, so anyway, I was like, oh, I'll burn you this CD. And Jordan was like, oh, no, like, no, that's all right. You don't have to do that. And I said, I was like, don't worry about it. It's like I got a fat stack of CDs that are just doing nothing. It takes no time to burn you a CD. Like, it's not a problem. And he got a little uncomfortable, and he was like, well, actually, like, I, I don't want you to because then I would, I would own a copy of that music, and I, I didn't pay for it, so... Technically, that's illegal. And I was just dumbfounded. I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, seriously, who cares? <laughs> and and he, he didn't want to offend me, so he was kind of timid. He's like, well, like, we're supposed to obey the law as Christians, and I, I want to do what Jesus tells me to do. So I, I deleted the music that I don't actually own off of my computer, and, and I don't want to have any burnt CDs. And I turned to Jordan, and I said, Jordan, that is the dumbest thing <laughs> I have ever heard. 
I, I full on said this to him. I just looked him dead in the eye. I was like, Jordan, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I am never going to delete the music that I don't own off of my computer. Fast forward a couple months later, right? So I'm sitting in church on a Sunday morning worshiping. And it was, it was an awesome worship experience. Like, I, I felt like I was there in the throne room of God. And I was giving him praise. And it was, it was so good. And all of a sudden... In the middle of the song, it was, it was like the doors were closed. I was kicked out, and I couldn't worship anymore. And I was, I was confused. I started praying. I was like, God, I, I don't know why this feels like I can't worship you right now. I don't know if there's like a, a sin in my life that I haven't repent, repented of, but I, I pray that at some point this week, like you would send somebody to speak into my life. And, and before I could finish that prayer, God said to me, Delete the music that you don't own off of your computer. And I, and I was just like, dang it. Because I really love that music. And I knew it was going to be hard, but I knew, it, I knew it was what God wanted me to do. Like I knew for relationship with him, for, for a fullness of joy and of freedom, like that's where I needed to be. And I remembered back to my conversation with Jordan, and I was grateful for his example of obedience. Okay, so what happened in that story? Jordan was living a life of obedience to God in a way that made him stick out from the people around him. It was not the norm. I, playing the role of a pagan, as I so often do so well, (laughs) I harassed him for it, right? We were tied at this point, so I just let him have it. I was like, dude, you're an idiot. It's so dumb. I gave him such a hard time for it. And I said what he was doing was foolish. Then I had an encounter with God, and suddenly I, I understood Jordan's good works for what they were, and I praised God for his example. If you're submitting yourself to God, you're going to behave differently than some of your neighbors, or your classmates, or your coworkers. And they're not always going to understand why you do the things you do. You have to be ready to endure that criticism, whether it be behind your back or to your face, whether it be really subtle or just really on the nose, really aggressive. But don't fear that persecution. Fear God, right? Because one day they're going to meet Jesus and they'll finally understand Verse 12 says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And there's some debate over the meaning of that phrase, day of visitation. Some would say that it refers to the day of judgment, and some would argue that it's the day of salvation. It might be that Peter's saying here, live a holy life because people are going to see it, and they're going to come to know Jesus because of it. Either way you interpret it, we can endure the suffering and the criticism on account of our good deeds because we know that God is glorified through them. So let's move on to the last context that Peter gives us instruction for, the government. How do people submitted to God live in relation to the government? They obey the law. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 and actually 15 as well. Um, It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We submit to the government out of reverence for God. It's an overflow of our submission to God. When you were a kid, okay, think back to when you were a kid and your parents went out for the night and they left you with a babysitter. What did they say as they left? It's like, be good, behave, and listen to the babysitter. Do what they say. You submit to your parents by submitting to the babysitter. You do what the babysitter says because that's what your parents said to do. And that's kind of the dynamic between you, the government, and God, right? It's, it's in the same way that a babysitter is there to maintain order in the house. Governments exist to maintain order and justice in a nation, to punish evil and to commend good. That's their role. So we as believers, in reverence to God, we submit ourselves to the leaders and the laws of the government we live under. To the glory of God, we follow the speed limit, and we pay our taxes, and we don't burn Jordan CDs. And that's the main point of this section. And I want, I want to stress that, because this next point takes a little bit more explanation. But the main point is that we submit to God by submitting to the law. We as Christians should be peaceable, law-abiding citizens. But what about when one of the commands of the government comes into direct contradiction with one of God's commands? Let's go back to our babysitter illustration, and let's give her a name. Becky's a good name. Becky sounds like a good, solid babysitter. So your parents have left the house, and you're under Becky's authority. Now, say your parents had a white couch in the living room. Why your parents got a white couch when they have children is entirely beyond me. Seems like a recipe for disaster. But for the sake of this illustration, they have a white couch in the living room. And your parents have established it as a house rule that you, you don't eat on the white couch. So the delivery guy shows up with the pizza, because of course you get pizza when you're being babysat. And uh, you want to eat in the living room while you watch a movie. And Becky says, hey, let's eat on the white couch. Now Becky's your babysitter but she doesn't have the authority to override your parents' rules, right? So you being a lovely, obedient child, you say, actually, Miss Becky, we're not allowed to sit on the couch while we eat. Now, Becky doesn't like that rule, and Becky gets kind of pushy. <laughs> and she says, you sit on that couch, and you eat that pizza, or you're going to get a timeout. So what do you do? What are you supposed to do in that situation? You endure the unjust verdict of the timeout, right? Because you love and reverently fear your parents. And you know that when they get home, Becky's going to have to answer for herself, right? She's going to have to answer to that higher authority. Let's look again at verse 17, those bullet points that we talked about earlier. Honor God, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We show honor to our political leaders by obeying the laws 
that they've put in place, and by honoring the people that they've put in place to enforce those laws, governors and judges and police officers, but we don't fear them because final authority doesn't rest with them. It rests with God. Honor the emperor. Fear God. God's authority trumps any government, any political party. God's authority trumps Trump. I had to say it. It's low-hanging fruit. I couldn't resist. I couldn't walk past it. But it's true. Like, our ultimate allegiance is to God, not the President of the United States. Yet out of fearful reverence to God, we submit ourselves to the leaders and the laws of our government insofar as they do not cause us to sin against our higher authority. We're not to follow our government into sin, but we submit and we obey in, in every way that aligns with God's commands. But if there comes a day, and, and perhaps for you it's, it's already come, when you're put in a situation when you have to choose between obeying the law and obeying God, by all means, we submit to our higher authority. And Peter wrote this message to his readership to encourage them to be upstanding, law-abiding abiding citizens, right? He's not pointing out ways to rebel. I don't want us to leave as a church and start talking, and people hear us talking, and suddenly people are like, wow, Salt City Church, they're pretty anti-government. Like, that's, that's a room full of sub subservience right there, just trying to stir up trouble. Like, that's the, the exact opposite thing Peter was writing against. He's saying, put to silence that foolish chatter. Put to silence those bad rumors and obey your government. But in those rare instances, hopefully, and we're blessed to live in a government where those instances are rare, in those rare instances when there's contradiction between the government's commands and God's commands, we look to Jesus to see how to do that. We look to Jesus to see in what manner we are to disobey our government in order to obey God, in order to submit to God. And what did Jesus do? He endured the persecution with confidence. He willingly subjected himself to the government. He never resisted. He never compromised in his submission to God. He, he could have flipped the script in an instant, right? At any point in his unjust trial, he could have just flown, right? He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He could have changed that situation entirely. But what did he do? What did he, do? He, he subjected himself to that authority, knowing that the will of God was being carried out the whole time. And the invitation for redemption to the whole world came about as a result. We're free to live out our identity submitting to God because of how perfectly Jesus lived out that identity for us. We get an, a, an example of how to live in our government, in the unbelievers around us, and within ourselves because we see this tension perfectly lived out 
and beautifully glorified in the life of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that that you give us an opportunity to live out freedom. God's servanthood to you isn't just a, a false form of freedom. It's, it's true freedom. God, we thank you that you give us that fullness of joy in our obedience to you. And we thank you that our identity in Christ is continually being made truer and truer as your Holy Spirit refines and sanctifies us and makes us more holy, makes us look more like Jesus. We pray that you would continue that work, God, that we would fight against our sin nature. God, that we would love to choose obedience to you, that we would love to do good deeds in order that you might be glorified, you might be made visible and made known through our submission to you, God. We pray that these things will be true, and we pray them in your name. Amen.